Imagine a world you're thrilled to be living in. Imagine telling your children and your grandchildren that in this time and in this place, we came together. Imagine change unconstrained by our individual understandings of what is possible. This is all of us on WNHH, New Haven's independent radio station. I'm Greg Grinberg. But it bends toward justice. We will be the participants in making it so. And so as I leave you this evening, I say, walk together, children, don't you get weary. The arc of history bends toward justice and ever-increasing freedom for everyone. It doesn't happen automatically. It happens because we bend it. Today, we're talking, uh, today, four days before the inauguration of the 45th president, we are talking about, uh, we are honoring the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a time when many of us, whatever side of the political spectrum we find ourselves on, have found that our power has been taken away from us. And today we're talking about what we can do to no longer participate in that process. How we take our power back by living our lives in a different way. My guests today are Steve Winter and Emily Sigmund. After five years in Boulder, they're back in New Haven. And if you haven't had a chance to say hello, you definitely should because they're really cool. Steve, Emily, welcome to the program. Thanks, Greg. Good to be here. So um, I want to start just by asking you guys to... Uh, to just tell your story a little bit. You've done so many interesting things in the food space, in the cooperative housing space. You were doing politically active stuff, Steve, I know back here in New Haven before you left, and then Boulder. Uh, I know that you've been advocating fiercely on behalf of cooperative housing. So um, let's just, let's start with that. Let's start with what you've, what you've been up to in the cooperative housing space and in the food cooperative space. Sure, well, I, I think this whole our whole sort of experiment in Boulder just sort of started with more of a feeling than a grand master plan. Uh, we had moved back to Colorado somewhat unexpectedly. I, I grew up there um, when I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and this was a cancer that um, likely had something to do with the kinds of foods I was eating as a kid. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a household with a single parent who worked long hours and, you know, did everything she could to make sure that we were taken care of. And, and oftentimes that meant, um, you know, really stocking up on things like canned foods and frozen goods so that my sister and I could always make food for ourselves, even if my mom was working late. And so I grew up really loving like SpaghettiOs and Stouffer's and Chef Boyardee and all that kind of stuff. Um, but ultimately, uh, I think that did a number on my health. So, and that, you know, combined with things like, uh, you know, getting myself super stressed out in college and not sleeping enough, you know, all these things kind of combine. Um, but so we moved back to Colorado and, and trying to figure out how to deal with all of this. And in the haze of um, a lot of pretty intensive surgeries and treatments and things like that, uh, I just kind of stumbled. I, I, I developed this sort of like <laughs> weird habit of going on Craigslist and like looking through the housing listings, hmm. um, like sort of the way some people I th- you know, like might browse Facebook to um, like pass the time. I would just like look at all these houses in cities all around the world and just like imagine if I lived in them. Um, and then again, just to like pass the time, I started actually visiting some of the houses that were in Boulder and walked into this one house that like I thought there was like no way we could ever afford in this really beautiful neighborhood, like in the mountains. And I mean, we didn't even have a plan to be living in Boulder long term. And I walked into the house and I just was like overwhelmed with this feeling. I was like, this is it. There's something about this house and there's something like calling me to say that I I have to live here. Mm. Um, And I had this sort of vague notion of wanting to live in a really enriching environment with a lot of people kind of like I had done in college or I had visited some intentional communities when I was woofing. That's like volunteering on organic farms, like during school breaks that seemed like really wonderful and just full of life. Um, and so we just kind of embarked on this experiment. I, I should mention that it's illegal to live with more than three unrelated people in Boulder. This house was advertised as a four bedroom house, but it turned out it was actually a seven bedroom house that had like a whole separate 
unit in it with a second kitchen. It was like... So perfect for a housing cooperative. Yeah, and a beautiful yard that really hadn't been taken very good care of, but it had all these old fruit trees and especially with like everything going on with my health and wanting to have a different relationship with food. You know, I was really interested in having a space to experiment with growing food in a way that felt like it would be nourishing for me and also sort of restorative for the environments that, that I was living in. So, so we kind of just like pretended that that law about three unrelated people living together didn't exist. Yeah, for Um, sure. (laughs) And we uh, started this house and we, Um, we put, uh, we had actually been in a shorter term rental before then and and did the same thing where we, uh, we pretended that that law didn't exist. This was like a five month rental that we'd gotten just to, just to pass the time and figure out what we were doing next. And so somehow, even though all those people were strangers that we met on the internet, (laughs) just advertising vacant rooms, we formed a really close bond and ended up, everyone ended up moving into that next house together. Um, and everything sort of evolved over the next five years. I certainly didn't have any sense of what a housing co-op was. I never really thought of that, that there was such, you know, that there was like an institution or something like that, that we would fall into or, or that we could become. Um, but over time, through some really exciting moments and some really like horrible moments and some exasperating moments and humbling moments and wonderful, you know, everything in between, um, over time, lots and lots of people came through the house that ended up giving it sort of a life of its own and a structure that um, has sort of persisted. And uh, and in particular, we were really, really focused around this idea of food. And Absolutely. Because we're talking about things that sound, you know, at first blush a little bit mundane. I mean, we're talking about, you know, where you live, what you eat. And yet it is precisely those things. It is those basic needs that really are, are, the, are the tools by which freedom can be limited. Right. right? And you experienced that in the, in the worst possible way with, with the health issue that you experienced. Right. Well, and actually I would say that the health issue was, was sort of liberating. You know, I had this, you know, all of my peers were going out in the world and searching for jobs and a lot of them were really not having a lot of success. And you know, or they were taking on, you know, jobs with these big corporations that didn't really seem interesting to me. I had tried to take on a job working at like a social impact enterprise for a while that was super fast paced and definitely wasn't for me. And and, and so I think mm. it was almost kind of nice in that I had this reason, a very compelling reason and, a, you know, a sort of legitimate reason to withdraw a little bit and say, it's okay, I don't have to go figure out a job right now instead of figuring out how I'm going to make a bunch of money I can figure out how I don't need to spend a bunch of money and still have a high quality of life it still have a quality of life that's going to help me beat this thing um so and I I got really focused on food I read a bunch of like permaculture books and just you know really wanted to experiment some of my experiments were more successful than others but the process in and of itself I I think was healing and I, I started off you know just trying to figure out how to farm and things like that. We had some other housemates come in and, and create this wonderful food sharing program in the house. I don't know if you call it a program, but, but you know, basically we figured, hey, like, you know, we're we started off as like seven people. Eventually it grew to be about 12 people. But, um, you know, we're seven people. We don't all need to be cooking food for ourselves individually. We can come up with a rotating cooking schedule. So, you know, one or two of us will cook for everybody one night of the week and then the rest of the week you're sort of cooked for, you know, we don't all need to be going to the grocery store and picking up our own individual things and putting them on our individual shelves. We can buy, you know, we can use our, our power to um, buy food in bulk from wholesalers. And we actually ended up getting like a, um, you know, kind of in, almost incorporating ourselves uh, like an LLC. And um, I don't know if we, I don't think we were actually an LLC, but, you know, working as if we were a business and, and purchasing right. food from a distributor directly, really, we were lucky in that there was an organic local distributor that sourced um, from really high quality nearby farms for the most part. Um, and they were able to, you know, when we met an order minimum, they were able to drop off right at our house. And so getting, and, and of course, we, we also started you know, foraging around the city, recognizing there's all these edible things that are just growing all around us and we don't recognize them as food and there's so much to be harvested there. So we started doing that just for fun and then ended up creating some, actually some nonprofits that did that um, sort of in a more organized way and organizing neighbors around that sort of thing. But anyway, um, I got really (laughs) sort of radical about it and, um, started a blog called store no more where I 
uh, I get kind of like an existential like angst when I go into grocery stores. Like there's usually no natural light and there's like all these signs everywhere and there's all this food and you're trying to figure out how to make like healthy choices, but there's like all this food. And <laughs> if you go to like the grocery store when you're hungry, like forget about it. Like you're going to come home with the worst stuff. And so, I, you know, well, some of our listeners will know that you're sort of preaching to the choir here <laughs> to me personally. <laughs> yeah, Steve, Steve can attest. He, he, he like, you know, she's like par- paralyzed. Right <laughs> in the grocery store. It's like cat just doesn't freezes up. Yeah. yeah. So it's so I, I was like, you know, I want to try this thing and really hold myself accountable. Like, I want to see if I cannot go to the grocery store for a year. And, it, you know, it wasn't about like being totally self-sufficient, but recognizing that, um, if I were, if every, if the way that I got food was through community, that, that it, it had to be that way because I couldn't just be an individual with a wallet full of cash or a credit card and go to a grocery store and get whatever I as an individual needed. Instead, it, everything had to be relational. So whether it was that I was involved in this dinner sharing program, or if I was involved in this bulk food buying thing, or if I was going out and harvesting food with friends or, you know, keeping up a garden that that's, that is that productive takes more hands than just my two. So, or, or even just going out to eat with a friend, you know, it's not, you know, and I considered that okay. And it's not something obviously that I did very often to, you know, just go out to a restaurant, but still like going out and having a conversation with someone over food, even if it's pre-prepared for you, even if it's not this like radical self-sufficiency thing was really important for me so that, food wasn't just about like what I was putting in my body, but how I was sort of like organizing myself in the world and, and what each action of, of eating of consumption was really producing. And if it was producing something that I thought was going to help make the world, you know, a healthier, better place, or if it, or my, my life, a more sort of like um, community oriented type of life or if it was something that was going to uh just kind of stay in this vein of like rugged individualism and like distancing from from one another and from sort of the source of things that sustain us um so yeah that that was sort of the idea and i ended up not going to the grocery store for a couple of years which uh, is amazing as an accomplishment yeah, in life was, actually it was really fun yeah <laughs> but I don't know. So there's that. You know, uh, someone once sort of gave me this mental image. Uh, they, you know, sort of said, imagine that um, advanced extraterrestrials were visiting us from another planet and they were hanging <laughs> out in orbit, looking down on us, kind of studying us sort of surreptitiously. And, and imagine, you know, what their perspective would be watching all of us, you know, drive from our individual little single family homes in right. our little individual cars right. to the supermarket, <laughs> you know. Uh, you know, it, it, we're, we're driving a two-ton vehicle to pick up 20 pounds of food for ourselves and maybe a few other people, you know, and we're all doing that, you know. Imagine how inefficient that would look. <laughs> right, yeah. Imagine how ridiculous that would look, you know. And when you and when you think about, you know, whether whether it's public health or your own individual health or the health of the environment or the health of our communities, you know, you know whether, whether you're seeing the world through a social justice lens, whatever, it's, it's really hard not to come back to food. Right. You know, I mean, as as one is one of the biggest determinants of what an individual experiences and what will happen over over time to our ecosystems and and ultimately this planet's ability to support human civilization. Yeah. It's, food is one of the food is 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 right up there in all in all of those in totally. all of those impact areas. And and I think too there's a tendency to be really myopic about food and health like especially in a place like boulder where everyone is super health conscious and there's you know a million really fancy health food stores and things like that i think it's really easy to say you know well you know if i have this health problem and i know that like my diet of you know chia seeds and whole grains or whatever is going to fix that then it's really easy to justify you know going to these stores and dropping a lot of money on health food and there's something that's really great and empowering about that but for me, there was mm. something that was number one, pretty inaccessible about that. Sure. And number two, just felt like it wasn't really addressing the problem. Like maybe that could help me in the short term, although it sure felt overwhelming to try to figure out like what combination of like everything I was supposed to eat to save my life. But um, like, you know, these things were being imported from all over the world and 
And I wondered about people who were in my same situation who, you know, either in the United States or in a you know Western country that didn't have, um, I should say, you know, like a more industrialized or like, you know, wealthier country that don't have access to those uh, sort of like high end grocery store resources, but also to people who are living in these countries where a lot of these sort of superfood things are coming from. Like, do they have access to cancer care? What are their outlooks for life? And it just seemed to me like if we were going to solve the issue of some of these, um, you know, non-communicable diseases being ultimately sort of abated by diet, it wasn't going to come from individuals changing their diet sort of myopically. It was going to come from different ways that our agricultural system itself uh, functions in the world um, and in the ecologies in which like it's embedded. And so for me, it wasn't just about what I was eating. Um, and in fact, I, I try to stay pretty far away from being really, really militant about my diet because I think it's, it's so much more about how we're relating to the people around us and, or how I'm relating to the people around me and, and also, you know, how I'm relating to the environment around me and um, what I'm doing so that my patterns of consumption are also patterns of production of the kinds of things that um, I think are, real, are valuable um, ecologically. Absolutely, because food is not just, you know, sort of, you know, in the top, if not the top of the, you know, uh, in all of those impact areas. But it's also the one that I think that we as individual consumers can have a real impact on. I mean, in other words, we can move the needle on our own individual impact by changing what we eat, which is and I think that that kind of uh, that kind of impact is a little bit more accessible than, you know, moving into a more energy efficient home, for example. It's much easier to change what we eat. So I think it's really interesting that you guys, and, and I think it's really appropriate to be having this conversation today, that you guys took, you know, sort of this power back into your own hands by changing in a, in a pretty radical way the way that you procured food in this highly cooperative way. Yeah. And I guess one thing, too, that I want to stress is that some things about that are radical, but the day to day of that doesn't actually feel all that radical. Um, it, it wasn't challenging you know certainly some of the you know managing living cooperatively democratically making consensus-based decisions around everything with a group of people who are typically strangers before they come into the house is challenging but but when those systems are running properly it's actually you end up with much more free time you're not spending time going to the grocery store shopping you're not spending time cooking yourself or you know you and your partner or you and your kids you know a meal every single day of the week um, you're not planning meals out. You're it, it. It happens much more, sort of, to use sort of a hackneyed phrase, you know, organically. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. But you've you've you found a way to take freedom back in so many ways, in the in the in the individual, you know, hours that you're spending, right. and then also in terms of the impact of the food on you long term, and the impact right. on 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 other communities long term, and the I, impact of the ecosystems long term. Yeah, totally. I think the house really made that possible. It started with right. this act of civil disobedience reclaiming our housing and uh, getting other folks who are interested in living together uh, and doing some things together. And yeah, the, the first real big piece of that and the thing that was the glue for that community was food. Yeah, that's a great, great way of putting it. when like-minded folks get together and decide that they want to go in together and, and purchasing food, then that's where things get really interesting because going from one or two people buying food once a week to a group of eight or ten people who are going to buy food that could last them for a month allows or you to like do a season. all kinds of creative things with the food you're getting. Uh, but yeah, it really started with uh, this act of civil disobedience and saying, look, these housing laws, these zoning laws that are meant to constrain people and boost rent prices artificially, we're, we're just not going to take part in that. We're going to be good neighbors. We're going to be good citizens. We're going to be a part of this larger community in town, but you know, we're not going to comply with that. And gradually uh, we had more folks who had, like Emily said, had more experience with this kind of thing. And there was this convergent evolution where we realized, okay, if we're going to make decisions as a group, we've got to meet regularly. If we're going to meet regularly, we want everyone to have a voice. If everyone has a voice, it's got to be democratic. If it's democratic, then 
it's starting to look a lot like a cooperative where every person has one vote and that vote counts equally. And then all of a sudden, when we had those basic dynamics fleshed out, and sure, if you're living with folks in a regular biologically related nuclear family or you're living in a larger cooperative family, there's going to be tensions, there's going to be conflicts, but there are ways to work those out constructively. No, absolutely. And that um, that uh, act of civil disobedience had a um, had a tremendous effect, right? Uh, tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken, right, there's going to be a vote in the uh, in the city council to allow cooperative housings to exist, whereas before they've been prohibitive. Yeah, that's right. There's a regulatory framework that's been developed over the last year and change. And uh, tomorrow they're going to have the final vote uh, to make that law. Mm. And uh, that framework will allow groups of up to a maximum of 12 or 15 people to live together in houses where previously they could only live three or four. As long as they're respectful neighbors who are organized cooperatively, are making these decisions democratically, are sharing resources like food, rent, utilities. Uh, often they're even sharing vehicles. Uh, we had two shared vehicles at the co-op. Uh, so yeah, the city's really interested in this because- And, and only three vehicles total. That's right. Yeah. yeah, for whatever the group was, even when we were higher numbers, it was you know, 10 or 12 people, only three vehicles. So yeah, the city, it lines up really well with their goals of sustainability, resiliency, sure. affordability, community. Uh, and so in that sense, it's, it's really straightforward for, for city policymakers. And you guys spearheaded that and in a, in a lot of ways. And I want to talk a little bit about the awesome things that you guys are doing in New Haven now. Emily, your forest garden. Um, I want to talk about that a little bit later in the show, but first I wanted to just, uh, to stay on this topic. I mean, you guys spearheaded that and you even got kicked out of your house. I mean, this was not a zero cost, uh, political effort for you guys. Yeah, after four years of, of living uh, and really having wonderful relationships with everybody on our block, uh, baking cookies, watching dogs, house-sitting, uh, sharing... sidewalks. Yeah, shoveling sidewalks, sharing vegetables and fruits from the garden. Uh, we decided it was time to come out of the shadows and uh, try to make these kinds of living situations legal and that was after one of the other cooperatives. You know, we were part of a small movement of houses like ours that had cropped up in the last five or 10 years. One of the other houses had gotten called in for over occupancy. Mm. And the city council said, well, we, we're not so sure we want to destroy these communities. This community, the Radish Collective, uh, was a home to many people, uh, immigrants, uh, people of color, uh, gay, bi, straight, lesbian, people who had been uh, ostracized from their biological families because of their sexual orientation. Uh, and uh, and we're also really leaders in the community and, and had started so many valuable nonprofits. I mean, one of them had been named Woman of the Year in Boulder. It, it was a really, and it is a, a really incredible place of, of activism and creativity and support and, and inclusiveness. A haven, a, haven, yeah. a real refuge for people who'd been kicked out of other places. And this was the house that was getting called in for uh, over-occupancy. So when they got called in, we said, look, we should put our cards on the table. We all need to come out in solidarity mm. and we need to stand up for them. And, and if we do, maybe we can get something changed in this town. But the price of speaking up was uh, one, of our, one of our neighbors who said he was totally fine with us living next to him illegally, uh, knowing that if we ever did anything, he could always call us in, held right. that power over our heads. Yeah, uh, He said he wasn't going to stand for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the city had said they weren't going to enforce these laws after the Radish got called in. They said, pause, we're going to think about crafting legislation to enable these spaces. We're going to protect them for now. So uh, this one neighbor actually went to our landlord and said, look, you can rent to these folks, but if you do, we're going to have problems, maybe even legal problems. So go ahead, but do it at your own risk mm. and, and really threaten him. Uh, and, and he had said we were great tenants. He you said know. we were the best tenants he'd ever had. Yeah. And we had done all kinds of improvements. Well, Emily it sure had, sounds like it. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it, it's hard to imagine better improvements to you know to a property than than what you guys did in terms of I know you finished off the basement and then there was you know there that you know the, growing all of this food turning 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 land that's doing nothing into productive you know land that's growing you know right. organic vegetables right. you know and, that, and really stayed on top yeah. of maintenance issues did a lot of things on our own that I think normally people would call you know would have the landlord take care of you know we really improved the bones you know the, the infrastructure of the house like pretty substantially i would say yeah yeah absolutely and so he really reluctantly said look i i can't resign you guys and that ended up being a blessing in disguise at this point uh the cooperative like emily had said taken on a life of its own we were no longer leaders of this community we were just parts of a community right and the folks we were living with went out searching for a new home and ended up finding a place with a landlord who would end up going to bat for them at city council with the city attorney, uh, stating publicly that, again, they were the best tenants that they'd ever had, and really vouching for them in this process with the city. Uh, and so uh, they actually moved into a place where they were even more supported politically. Uh, and Like like three blocks away. Yeah, just, three yeah. Blo- just a mere three blocks away. Wow, yeah. that's fantastic. Um, so... We yeah we did end up functionally getting evicted, but it ended up working out well. And this time around, we were I maybe even more proactive about getting right. neighbors behind us and having those neighbors testify to the city and making the case that look, people are going to say that these houses are disruptive or they don't belong in parts of the city. All this coded language that gets used in any debate about housing, right? And uh, has been used to exclude people from parts of cities uh, for decades. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have these conversations in Connecticut where certain towns decide that they want to make it so that, you know, you have to have a certain number of acres, like a, a ridiculously large number of acres, you know, before you can put a house there, you know. And of course, many of the houses in those communities are, are grandfathered in, right? beforehand um you know that you know a lot of these a lot of the pre-existing homes in other words don't actually meet those those requirements and you know and sort of the language is all about like preserving our way of life neighborhood character all that all yeah Yeah. all of this language but what it really boils down to functionally is excluding people from you know you know people who you know are from you know different races different socioeconomic brackets it it really keeps it really keeps a lot of people out and that's you know whether that's this whether that's stated or unstated in many in many in the minds of many, that's actually the goal, and it's just sort of cloaked in this language of, of um, you know, of, of preserving open space or whatever. Yeah, we. I think we all have an obligation as informed citizens to get to know our zoning code, to get to know the land use code, because that's the the backbone of the implicit segregation that underlies a lot. Like you said, a lot of the communities that are being excluded or disenfranchised, uh, and that's how. Yeah, that's how it felt. For, for us in Boulder, I didn't go to a city meeting for, for over three years uh, because I was so worried about stating my address and getting losing my home. And then the, right. the first time I went to a city meeting and spoke up, a month later, I lost my home. Right. And, and so it's hard not to feel functionally disenfranchised. And that's coming from a white guy in Boulder. Yeah. So right. this zoning, it has even more perverse uh, and more consequential effects on other even more obviously marginalized communities absolutely and on a slightly different topic it i think this is why the the term illegal you know when you refer to a human being as illegal it it you know it, of course it um it disenfranchises them in the worst possible way because now their 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 mere existence in this country is something that they need to hide so how can they possibly tell their story and and advocate for you know, for what they need as, as members of our communities, as, as people who have lived here in some cases for decades and sent their kids to and pay taxes and send their kids to school and absolutely, or been kids in school growing up here. Um, you know, been American by every definition of, of that word, um, you know, full participants in these communities and, and, you know, but to, to not be able to, um, to even show up in, um, you know, in official settings, um, is I couldn't agree with you more about how how disenfranchising that is and how how badly that needs to change. But yeah, when these communities were able to band together, we we were able to influence the legislative process right. that the city council went through in a really powerful way, and we were able to rally people to send uh, 
thousands of emails. Uh, we set up a BCC campaign. Mm-hmm. So we had an email address, legalizedcoops at gmail.com. We said, write to city council, BCC us. And in the fall at the public hearing, we had over 225 emails BCC'd, uh, which was roughly three quarters of the emails. So that really helped them make a favorable decision for us. And then in December, there was no public comment. So we really ramped up this email campaign. And we had uh, over 500 emails sent into city council for that public comment or public hearing, or sorry, for that hearing where there was no public comment. Uh, and that was a really powerful statement. The city council, uh, with the folks opposing our campaign, also sending in 500 emails, received over 1,000 emails related to cooperatives for that December 6th hearing alone, which was more emails than they'd ever received on a single topic ever anything ever. Wow. So it was really amazing uh, to get these communities coming together in person for demonstrations at City Hall, in solidarity, holding hands, uh, showing up as a larger community, but also digitally to bring people uh, who had never emailed council, uh, who had never gotten in touch with their public officials before to, to reach out and stand up for these homes that were being threatened. And it was cool, too. Just people were, you know, all of a sudden the city, you know, people were going to these city council meetings, which sometimes go till like one o'clock in the morning. And, people, you know, the room was totally over full. You know, there were, then the next, you know, atrium over is totally full of people. It, it, even, you know, being sort of charitable with the other side, you know, they were very uh, involved as well. And, and for me, it was cool to watch this whole democratic process like really unfold like there really was a lot of activism on on both sides and and whether or not you know i I profoundly disagree with the other side at least it felt like there was um a lot of public debate a lot of public engagement It, it felt like you know sometimes if you know if you go on a um you know, a, a protest march or something, people will chant like, you know, show me what democracy looks like. And people say, this is what democracy looks like. And that's very right. powerful. But to me, you know, seeing hundreds of mm-hmm. people just kind of sitting patiently in a city council hearing and really listening as, as the, you know, our elected officials talk through the details of how, how many pages is the ordinance? I don't even know. I think 20 Like a 30. 20 page wow. ordinance. You know, th- to me, that's also what democracy looks like. And it was cool to see. It's the nuance. It's the details. Right. right. It, it was cool to see a real span of, of generations and, and proclivities participate in that. Um, yeah. They say democracy is an endless meeting. I think, <laughs> I think there's some real truth to that. Yeah. And uh, hopefully people are listening openly and honestly to the other side, as it sounds like you were. And, and hopefully they were of you as well. To some, to some degree, you know, I think. I, I think, everyone probably could have done better in some ways. But. Yeah, I, I I was actually pretty shocked to see how quickly the politics came to resemble the national level. Right. Where yeah. Smear campaigns and misinformation, and how it's it, all about knocking the other people off their footing and making them uh, appear like something they're not. Th- that was really quickly uh, in the local paper where things went. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, even on a local level, it was rough to see how quickly things got at odds with reality and how much effort it took to correct the record both in the paper and at public meetings yeah it was Uh, constant i do feel like both sides at least on some level made some genuine effort to understand the other side though and i think Mm. that was powerful and at the end of the day what hit home for me was that the folks on the other side had the same fear of displacement uh, they were worried about losing their sense of home if a co-op moved in near them and that disrupted how they felt about their home. So at the end of the day, the fear was the same. It was this fear of being displaced from your home or from your community because of uh, somebody kicking you out or because of new folks moving in. So I think at the root, it was kind of interesting to see that like psychologically, that's the way things were. But but that, that that it was the same the same concern at the root level was was in place in both for both sides. Yeah, yeah, losing one's sense of of home. Right, right. Uh, losing a sense of sanctuary and and sort of the control over the way that you live your life, which is all right. that you were looking for in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I think like Emily's right. Like one amazing thing was getting all these folks to come to these endless meetings, and and that really brings me back to food because 
if you put something on Facebook and say like, hey, come to the city council meeting, it's going to be really long and <laughs> you might, our, our topic might not come up until like 10 or 11 at night. Right. It's a totally different spin than the spin that some of our colleagues brought to it, which is like, hey, we're going to have an all night potluck party at City Hall. Right. Bring food. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have board games. It's going to be fun. And we're going to be there all night. Then people are like, hey, this sounds like something I want to be a part of. Let's do it. Let's make something. Right. And, and I think that the food, again, was like really uh, the gel that kept everybody together for a lot of these things. Uh, and I think, uh, yeah, to go back to the idea of reclaiming power as a community, the experiment we had buying uh, beans and rice and spices and grains together uh, just as a start, all these dry goods that we went in on together. Uh, there were some other folks who were interested in doing this as well. And so these other communities wanted to replicate this model. And so we decided to set up a food cooperative. Uh, I don't know how, but Boulder, Colorado didn't have a food cooperative. It and had so, tried and failed many times to you know, actually have like a storefront and that the rents were just too high for that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think having this like physical storefront location had sunk the last two food co-ops. Right. And so... Well, we, as, as it often sunk, sinks many grocery stores too. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, that the grocery industry is... Is a, is a so-called penny industry that, you know, the, the net profit margins are 1%, which means it's very easy to flip from profit to loss. And, you know, it sort of explains readily why we have the, you know, the food desert problem that we do. It explains why there are 23 million Americans who don't have adequate access within any reasonable distance of their, of their homes uh, to, to fresh, healthy, affordable food. Right. Yeah. And we were so lucky that we had reclaimed some space in our community and we could have food dropped off and store it uh in our garage and then uh when the food co-op got off the ground the one of the co-ops that's in like a a legally grandfathered boarding house well they would drop it off there and they would store it in their kitchen and then everyone would come by uh with their bike trailers and their vehicles and pick up whatever their order was um and so that model uh, the same thing that we started off doing this kernel of an idea mm. uh, expanded and grew into a similar model that a whole bunch of communities can take care of or ma- make use of. And now that these communities will become legal, I think it would be amazing to see all these communities, all these community homes, these co-ops, which are scattered in different neighborhoods around the city, be drop-off points for their right. neighborhoods. And right. so you can have... Uh, wholesaler drop off maybe at four or five of these houses and then cover a huge swath of the city with folks who just stop by just like they would pick up a community shared agriculture share stop by and grab their big bag of black beans right (laughs) and we had sort of done that with our house you know we had uh you know the one of the co-ops the masala co-op was sort of the place that a lot of the large bulk food items would get dropped off our house you know we had a big covered porch that we put a couple fridges on and we were part of a dairy share where, you know, a dairy farmer would come and drop off lots and lots of milk. And it was, you know, we were, it was a benefit for us because the milk got dropped off right at our house and sure. we love milk and make cheese and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but also it was a benefit to people who lived in our neighborhood who, you know, you can't buy raw milk at the store in Colorado. So instead they could come to our porch and pick up their share of, of the milk, um, you know, a couple doors down. And we did the same thing with the CSA one year where we were a drop-off location for, you know, a, you know vegetable vegetable boxes for people who lived in the neighborhood. Um, I think figuring out ways that these community-oriented spaces that already sort of have, you know, the the personnel and the bandwidth to to manage some of these things, is it's a really nice way to... To, to become an asset to your community um, in, in one really powerful way, and, and that is to, to be kind of a, a really high-quality, um, affordable food distributor. Absolutely. And as the founder of Actual Food, I have to say, sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. I also think it's really interesting, just to, to return to that sort of story that I, I, I just think you know, is really interesting about how what happened with your neighbor and how your neighbor sort of went kind of through back channel, like the, the most back of the back channels, you know, right, right to your landlord and convinced your landlord to, to not renew your lease, you know, effectively evicting you guys. I mean, I think it's really, I think that's an interesting 
thing to talk about a little bit too, because I think that phenomenon happens in a way that, it, that happens pretty often. And, and it's a sort of, it's a really insidious thing that people don't really appreciate that it's not always, you know, the big bad government regulator knocking on your door, you know, <laughs> looking like something out of a Men in Black movie or something like that, you know, with the with the suit and the sunglasses, you know, demanding that you, you know, comply with whatever, you know, subsection, you know, 22D of, of this ordinance, right? It's a lot of times it is its neighbors and it's the fear of regulation. It's not the regulation itself that actually affects our lived experience. It's the fear of it. You know, I, I can sort of identify this because, I mean, I've been told by neighbors that, you know, oh, my God, you know. If you put that outlet on the outside of your house, the historical association is going to have a problem with that. <laughs> and I'm like, really? You know, really? I, you know, the, they're going to have a problem with, you know, modifying these these condos that were built in the 60s that look like they belong in California. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely do not fit in the neighborhood already. This is going to be the straw that, that broke that camel's back. But I think it's interesting that, that you see that in, you know, you see that in all sorts of spheres that it's not. It's not it's not necessarily it sounds like the city has been fairly progressive. And I and I really hope that that vote goes the way goes your way tomorrow. You know, it sounds like they were willing to change and it's not. And, and I know that they declared a moratorium on enforcing that ordinance. Right. Oh, yeah. So it's not necessarily always, you know, the, the regulator who is impinging on freedom. It's sometimes it's 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 individual people, it's neighbors, you know, sort of who are who are living in fear of regulation in fear of what might happen. You know, oh, God, God our property values may go down, in, you right. know, hypothetically, if we, you know, allow people to do what they want to do. And, you know, so rarely is that actually, you know, ever the case. Mm. Right. And so I think that a lot of times, you know, we, we don't really appreciate that um, living um with the level of freedom that we that we that we all say that we want involves doing a lot of the hard work um in 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 daily life it involves being tolerant of one another as neighbors too just as much as it involves i mean that 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 endless meeting it, it's always happening it's ever present it's not just right the meeting block, in city yeah. hall yeah exactly Absolutely. It's every day, you know, it's, you know, when, you, you know, the, uh, you know, your, your neighbor's kid is, is playing the flute, you know, and, you know, makes the same mistake for the 11th time, you know, and it's, <laughs> you just want to, you know, and you realize that that is a kid who's learning how to play the flute, you know, and, and, you know, the 12th time that, that they need to make that mistake 11 times. To Do you make... have a neighbor with a kid who's learning how to play the flute? No, I have an awesome neighbor who, uh, who plays the harp and is really good at oh, it as a professor at the school of music. Nice, yeah. uh, and I'm incredibly grateful, you know, to wake up in the morning to harp music i mean how lucky could anyone <laughs> right. be you know um you know, so i I'm, i count myself very lucky on the on that uh equation yeah. but i you know just by way of example yeah you know. yeah, yeah, yeah so emily let's let's talk a little bit now so fast forward you guys are back in new haven emily you're at the forestry school and you're doing some really cool stuff with forest gardens so to start with tell tell us what a forest garden is what what is agroforestry what what is all well, that agroforestry can be a lot of things um and, and forest gardens are, are one sort of manifestation of, of agroforestry um, in practice. But um, a forest garden is basically, you know, you can imagine having a garden full of edible food. And, and I think the, the image that typically gets conjured up in the American mind of a, of a food garden is, you know, you've got your tomatoes and your peppers and, you know, some herbs and things like that. All of these delicious um, annual sort of crops. Um, a forest garden works a little bit differently. Um, you're working mostly with perennial species. Um, these are species that are coming back year over year over year without you having to um, plant new seeds. Um, and you're trying to arrange them in such a way that, number one, of course, you get a delicious harvest every year. Um, but number two, uh, the system sort of starts to regulate itself. So you rely on kind of a fundamental understanding of ecology to organize this thing in such a way that it sort of looks like a forest if you replaced, you know, every non-edible species in the forest with an edible species. So you end up with like apple trees and blueberry bushes and, you know, ramps on the ground instead of, um, you know, a, a white pine and a mountain laurel and a... Um, I don't know, uh, another kind of ground cover, um, all of which are wonderful plants and, and can be used um, edibly and medicinally. But but anyway, you know, things that but we're it, more but familiar with. But it resembles with. like a, a self-sustaining ecosystem. Exactly. Yeah. And and oftentimes you're, you're, you're pulling in considerations like how is water flowing through the system? How, are, how is solar flux moving through the system? How is wind moving through? How are, you know, what insects and birds and animals are, are going to be useful here? And, and really trying to think of all of that 
And, and how do you keep away the pests without using all kinds of chemicals? And yeah, exactly. You, you certainly want to avoid that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the, you know, using any sort of synthetic, you know, stuff it, to, to a very large degree. Um, and it really is just about trying to accommodate as much as you can, rather than um, trying to keep things out. You know, if something is, you know, if you've got a, you know, quote unquote pest in there, that's actually information about how your system is functioning and, and what that that pest is is fulfilling some kind of ecological role mm. and if you're not happy mm. about that pest you know it, it's not just about getting rid of the pest but really understanding why is it there what is it doing how is it serving this system and and is there a way for me to redirect that energy that um is is more useful for me but but less sort of violent towards the pest <laughs> i think is how i look at it well that, i mean that right there is such a beautiful shift in mindset that can I think apply in all sorts of spheres of life that you're it's if, that fundamentally what you're doing is you're changing the way that you think about it you're shifting from this is a pest to this is a life form right. it's here for a reason right and it's it's fulfilling a need and, right. and what is that need and if 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 the presence of that or let's say the the you know the overrepresentation of that life form in the ecosystem is making it impossible for you to get your blueberry harvest right then what what do we need to do what other things about the ecosystem need to shift right so that this uh you know th this this thing no longer becomes a super predator in this in right this ecosystem. exactly exactly um yeah so we uh there was a really wonderful woman uh, who graduated from the School of Forestry last year who got this project off the ground. Um, and she went through all the red tape and got all the permissions to actually plant one of these things in the middle of, of Science Hill um, next to the Forestry School building. Um, and this is open to the public, right? Anyone so, yeah, can, it's, can... it's open to the public. Um, you c it's right on 195 Prospect Street. You can also um, go on Facebook and just search Yale Community Forest Garden. Um, and if you like that page, uh, you'll get all of our sort of updates on, on events and things like that that we're hosting there, you know, planting days and medicine making days and things like that. Um, but yeah, so they have um, given me a little bit of... Uh, range in terms of what we can plant there we, we are trying to focus on planting native um, edible species and medicinal species which is exciting for me especially being a native of Colorado I'm learning a lot of new plants uh, that are endemic to New England so that's cool um, but yeah and it's it's a really exciting project for me I, I think it goes in this vein of a really um, sort of challenging the status quo when you look at a college campus especially when you look at a place like Yale which for a lot of people is sort of this emblem of success um, and you ask our you ask yourself you know like what does success look like what is the landscape of success look like at a college like Yale and in, at a lot of college you know really a lot of colleges it's just a lawn um, and some ornamental trees and I think that's where some of these ideas about what does and doesn't belong um, you know, in a neighborhood or in, you know, in a wealthy place or things like that kind of come from is, mm. is we're primed with these images of success that oftentimes are not very functional. Um, and right. so for me, I, my vision is to, you know, if one day change all the landscaping at Yale so that it, it serves multiple functions. And, and there's many great examples of that going on in patches. You know, there's the Urban Meadows Project. Um, there's like a Cretaceous Garden outside of the um, Peabody Museum. There's all kinds of wildlife sort of corridors and things like that. And, and I'm hoping that the Forest Garden can, can become one of these things that can be replicated um, and, and put in places to kind of supplant some of the areas that aren't as, as um, functionally interesting um, and get people really excited about this idea of, you know, you don't have to be a farmer to be able to harvest food right outside of your door. Um, and you can interact with your environment a little bit differently if you can sometimes eat it. Mm. And as somebody who believes that laziness is a misunderstood virtue. <laughs> exactly. I love the idea of being able to go outside and eat fruit that's growing naturally and 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 you know not and you know and and i love the you know the you know the perennial aspect of it right. that, you know the seeds have been planted they come back year after year you know yeah a little bit, a little bit of maintenance and, yeah these you know. kinds of systems if designed properly tend to be a little bit more intensive in the beginning in terms of the labor that's required but that labor tapers off quite a bit as the systems mature and it becomes just more periodic maintenance where um you know the biggest thing is actually finding time to harvest everything which is in my book, a, a pretty good problem to have. And it could start with lawns and, you know, trees that die out, like the emerald ash borers rolling through cities everywhere. But lawns 
lawns in America are, are one of our largest crops. They're lawns, the largest crop. In, oh, and largest? Yeah. yeah, and in aggregate mm. cover an area larger than the state of Texas. Oh, my God. So even if we start here in New Haven uh, with, with lawns at Yale and, and trees and lawns in this city, uh, that hopefully can be replicated. And like some of these other challenges we've faced, we can see other communities adopt them uh, and together create a larger wave of change. Absolutely. Just like you did in, in Colorado by being a housing cooperative and, then, and a food cooperative that then got replicated. And, you know, and I think that's the, that's the opportunity that we have in New Haven and in Connecticut as well. I mean, we have a lot of privilege as a, we have a lot of privilege of different kinds um, in, in this community and in this, uh, as, in the state. And uh, we can be a model for others to follow. Yeah. And, and I think too, it's this idea that, uh, you know, I think places like Yale, in some ways real and in some ways imagined, you know, fancy themselves these incubators of like the future leaders of the world. Right. And and even if you're just a visitor here, I think I think the environments in which we live and work and study have a really big impact on how we see the world. So for some people, the forest garden and things like it are going to be these really exciting ways to get their hands in the soil and, and really connect and, and, and really be happy about that. And for some people, I think it's really just priming to, to say, Hey, you know, I'm not interested at all in agriculture. I'm never going to take a science class at Yale. You know, I'm here for business. I'm here for art. I'm here to become a lawyer. I'm here mm -hmm. to, to become a, an eye banker. Um, or a politician or whatever. Um, but they will have spent, you know, some years of their life walking around in an edible landscape and, and seeing that, that, that kind of manifestation of success is, is real. And it, it's no less impressive than, than your lawn and your ornamental trees. And so I think that it's important too, to have that kind of priming in people. If we're going to see these kinds of actions affect things at a kind of a grander scale. Absolutely. And we'll be continuing this theme of talking about what we can do as individuals to, to one, take back our own power and our own control, but also to be models for others to follow over the next few episodes of all of us. Guys, is, I know that you guys are uh, involved in a lot of things now here in New Haven. Is there anything else that you want to give a quick shout out to or anything uh, before we, uh, before we uh, take well, us out? I've been involved with some organizers starting a grassroots group looking at getting Connecticut to join onto the National Popular Vote Compact. And that would switch over uh, the Electoral College so that the winner of the popular vote would be the president. So Hillary Clinton won uh, the popular vote by 2.9 million votes. Mm. And yet she's not the president. To me, that looks like real and criminal disenfranchisement. Yeah, or, it's, it's not one person, one vote. It's at not all. One, one person, one vote when almost 2% of the people who voted don't have their votes counted. It's not one right. person, one vote, and it's not equal, equally weighted votes. Everyone's votes should count, and everyone's votes should count equally. So if you're interested in that, check out National Vote Compact CT on Facebook uh, and sign up for email alerts. Thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. Emily, Steve, thanks so much for being on the show today. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for having us.